begin this morning with a, uh, a tongue-in-cheek list that uh, it's made its way around Facebook, actually, for a while now. It's not new, but uh, I'm not sure who wrote it or when it began to be passed around, but it certainly raises a number of interesting issues worth some thought this morning, especially as it relates to the series that uh, we've been in. The title of it is 12 Reasons Why I, as a Pastor, Quit Attending Sports Events. Number one, the coach never came to visit me. Number two, every time I went, they asked me for money. Number three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly to me. Number four, the seats were very hard. Five, the referees made a decision I absolutely didn't agree with. Six, I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what everybody else was wearing. (laughs) Number seven, some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. Number eight, the band played some songs that I had never heard before. (laughs) Number nine, the games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. Number 10, my parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Number 11, I like this one. Since I read a book on sports, I feel that I know more than the coaches anyway. (laughs) And number 12, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. It's sad to me that things like this, regardless of its humorous intent, indicates that although we know better, we continue to depict being part of a church is a spectator sport, right? Our evaluation of whether we want to continue our relationship with the church puts us squarely at the center and not Jesus. Commenting on her marriage, an eloquent young woman sitting in the office of a marriage counselor summarized her dilemma this way. She said, when I got married, I was looking for an ideal, but I married an ordeal. I think I got a raw deal, and now I want a new deal. (laughs) Much like this young woman's perspective on her marriage, there is this growing attitude among many in Christendom regarding their relationship toward the local church. They begin the relationship picturing the ideal. But they quickly realize that the church, this side of heaven, presented them with a very different deal, the real deal, right? And here's the deal. Anyone can love the ideal church, said Bishop Joseph McKinney. The challenge is to love the real church. That indeed is the challenge we all face, isn't it? But why should it be so hard? Jesus Christ, the Bible says, absolutely loves the church. Is that right? Loves it. And he loves it absolutely. In fact, he loved it enough to give himself up for it. And he did that not when the church was in its ideal state, but in its state of imperfection. According to Lehman Strauss, quote, the church is God's masterpiece, and it is the loftiest conception of beauty and unity and usefulness above everything else that is in the earth. God takes rough, crude sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. 
and produces vessels meet for the master's use. Sin-marred, defective material is transformed by God into useful instruments of righteousness, unquote. That's a snapshot of the church that Jesus loves with all of his heart. Yet isn't it amazing that many people, and maybe you're one of them, continually search for the perfect church, the ideal church, the one which they want to love, and this they do knowing that they themselves are gloriously imperfect. Jesus himself, the only perfect one, loves the church even in its present imperfection. And he is in the process of transforming it, isn't he? Could it be that we, imperfect as we are, have adopted a higher standard of measuring churches than actually Jesus has? One to which no individual nor any church can measure up? I want to suggest to you that many people have not adopted a higher standard but a wrong standard. And it shows in the statistics revealed through a massive 12-year research project overseen by British demographer David Barrett using a small army of researchers who gathered data from churches and denominations from every corner of the world. Barrett pieced together a composite picture of the worldwide church. And according to William Hendricks, author of the book Exit Interviews, here's what the picture revealed. Christianity, he says, has experienced massive losses in the Western and communist worlds over the last 60 years. In Europe and North America, net defections from Christianity converts to other religions or to irreligion are running, if we consider only church members now, 2,224,800 a year. That's 6,000 a day, people leaving Christianity. It's even higher if we're speaking of only church attenders. Every year, some 2,765,100 church attenders in Europe and North America cease to be practicing Christians within the 12-month period that they measured, an average loss of 7,600 people per day. Every day. Reading these numbers, I was reminded of another comment that Chuck Colson made to the Dallas Morning News. The author said he was referring to evangelicals, but the remark applies to the church in general. He said, if this were a business, you'd be contemplating chapter 11, bankruptcy. That's because it's hard to sustain a business when you're losing more customers than you're gaining. The church isn't a business necessarily, is it? The church is losing 7,600 customers a day in Europe and North America, according to Barrett. That means that every single week, more than 53,000 people leave church and never come back. To put that in perspective, consider that the United States lost about 57,500 people in the Vietnam War. In a different sense, the church loses almost that many people every single week. It's scary, isn't it? I'll look at it another way. 
A large church is said to be one that has about 1,000 people attending on a weekly basis, okay, each Sunday. We would have to plant, now get this, we would have to plant at least seven and a half churches, large churches with 1,000 members every single day of the year to offset the number of people walking away from churches that we already have. Seven and a half large, large churches of 1,000 members every single day of the year. I'm not a professional demographer, he says, so I can't pass judgment on the accuracy of Barrett's research, but even if he is off by half, the implications remain the same. In general, the church as we know it today doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of holding on to its people. Another statistic I read this week is every year somewhere between 4,000 and 7,000 churches close their doors every year. Southern Baptist researcher Tom Rayner puts the estimate higher. He says somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 churches. Compare that now to approximately the 1,000 church, new churches and mostly very small churches that start. So we're, cre- we're planting 1,000 churches a year, but we're losing 8 to 10. Barrett's research is now over 20 years old that I just quoted to you. But not surprisingly, current numbers have only continued this disturbing trend. In the end, however, what matters when it comes to the church is neither membership nor attendance, but spirituality. One's relationship with God and the implications of that relationship for day-to-day life. The real question then, and one that is always hard to answer, is whether our churches and parachurch structures are helping people meet God. People crave spirituality, but for the many, the search for it seems to lead them outside the programs and away from the structures. Is there hope then for the church? Of course there's hope, absolutely hope. The very sure hope of Jesus' promise that he would build his church and nothing, not even the gates of hell, would prevail against it. However, nothing in that promise obligates Christ to maintain our church. He has committed himself only to building a church, his church. So the issue is not how to get people back into churches, but how to make our churches into his church. Following me? Because there are no perfect churches, at least not on this side of heaven. And as long as you and I are part of it, as I have said during this series already, perfection is not the main issue about church health. Progression is. Are we moving closer to Christ or further away? That's the question that we have to answer. That's the dividing line, both in our personal lives and in our corporate life as a local body. The best place to find out whether or not that this is taking place, I believe, is through the revelation of Jesus' words to the church found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which is what we've been studying. In in selectively evaluating these seventh, first century churches located in Asia Minor, 
as you know, as to their spiritual health, Jesus gives us a point of reference to our church today. And as we have seen, the conditions which existed in those early churches closely parallel those which we encounter today. The similarities are absolutely remarkable. I don't know if you've noticed them so far, but I certainly have. There are churches today that are doctrinally correct, but are in danger of becoming spiritually corrupt. Is that right? Churches who lack love. Churches that have courted the world and others who have bought into it lock, stock, and barrel. But at the same time, within the boundaries of modern Christendom, there are bodies of believers that emphatically demonstrate love. Christ followers who steadfastly remain pure who extol the truth, who persevere under intense opposition, and who rely solely on Christ for their strength and their stamina. Churches that are not self-sufficient. There are communities of faith scattered throughout all the world who are growing and adopting his prescription for a spiritual, healthy body and are overcoming their weaknesses and the world's influence on them. They're all over the place. These are the ones that I am convinced that Christ wants us to model. A great church, according to Jesus' divine assessment, is an overcoming church. That's what you read in Revelation 2 and 3. After every church, a church, he who overcomes, and then Christ gives a promise. He who overcomes. So a great church is an overcoming church. I love this picture behind me. It's just the light is bursting out of the building. In each one of these letters, it is clear that overcoming the ordeals in order to reach the ideal is what Christ has in mind. As I implied earlier, the real issue is not how to get people back to church, but how to turn the church back to Christ. Because the greatness of the church is ultimately determined by the head of the church, who is who? Jesus Christ. So as we've looked at each of the first four churches of Revelation 2 and 3, I have tried to summarize what Jesus calls our attention to. Ephesus shows us that, number one, a church that is great in heaven's eyes maintains its love, both for Christ and for others. Christ's word to the second church in Smyrna reminds us that a church that is great in heaven's eyes suffers well. It weathers the storms of persecution and opposition. In fact, the more it's crushed, what? The more fragrant it becomes, right? In the midst of Christ's counsel to the church, the third church at Pergamum, we are drawn to the fact that a church that is great in heaven's eyes is not consumed by the world. We heard that last week. A spiritually healthy church transforms the culture because it transcends the culture. It's not so separated that it cannot relate to people, but it is extremely careful not to become a spiritual chameleon. In other words, adapting to the surroundings so well that it loses its distinctiveness. Instead, Jesus said to the church at Thyatira, also that a church that is great in heaven's eyes is not confused about the truth. Christ's stinging rebuke to the church at Thyatira ought to jolt any 21st century church into serious reflection on the topic of tolerance and intolerance and where that line must be drawn. We got that last week, right? Did you get that message last week, by the way? 
Great churches know where to draw that line. And as we look at the final three churches this week and next, I want to remind you that it is not my intention to tease out every single detail, but to draw out the major health indicators that Jesus highlights, the vital signs, so to speak. Jesus is kind of doing a sort of spiritual triage on these local seven churches. What is truly fascinating about these two chapters is the fact that some of the usual great church indicators that most of us would probably list, like building community, evangelism, stewardship, church planting, high attendance, vibrant worship, strategic vision, spiritual gifts, etc., etc. right? You've listed all those things. They're not even clearly mentioned here in these two chapters. That's an important insight. Although those things may be essential to the well-being of any ministry, and they are, the areas that Jesus pinpoints here are the things that are most abused and most often neglected deep at the core. The heart of the matter is not what looks good on the outside, but what is true on the inside. Case in point, the sleeping church at Sardis. Christ saw right through their veneer just as he does with any one of us and exposes what the naked eye cannot see and cannot detect. Jesus' honest evaluation of this church ought to really hit home. And here's what his evaluation is. Is that a church that is great in heaven's eyes does not rest upon the reflection of its past reputation, but on the reality of its present relationship with Christ. Let me say that again. A church that is great in heaven's eyes does not rest on the reflection of its past reputation, but on the reality of its present relationship with Christ. Let's look at these verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Follow along with me as I read. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write this, He who has the seven spirits of God and has the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just reading those verses, you know we're in for it, right? You got a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Stop dead right there. Located on Mount Timolus in southern Turkey, the city of Sardis stood at the crossroads of Asia Minor 
the most prosperous, powerful, fertile, and pagan province in the entire Roman Empire. First century Sardis had a unique blend of residents, faithful Jews and Christians who worshipped God blended with influential pagans who worshipped the Roman emperor and gods such as Artemis and Sibylle. Look at verse 1 again. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Here's the deal. Scientists studying the North Star Polaris have found that it's about 323 light years from the sun and the earth. Now, that used to be, they used to think it was 680 light years. Then it moved to 423 light years. And now, most recent studies say that it's really 323 light years. And so it takes 323 years for the light from Polaris to reach your eyes. Following me so far? That star could have burned out 323 years ago and its light would still be shining in the night sky as brightly as if nothing ever happened to it. You following me? In reality, it could be a dead star shining solely by the light of a brilliant but distant past. That was the church at Sardis. It had a name, but according to Jesus, it was dead. This church's reputation far exceeded its reality. They were resting on past accomplishments. They had settled into their lazy boys, so to speak. Their spiritual senses were becoming dull. They were dull. They were comfortable with their relationship to Christ. In reality, however, they were becoming spiritually anesthetized. Apparently, this church was well thought of by Christians in the surrounding area. They had made a name for themselves as a church that was thriving with spiritual life. But Jesus stripped away the facade and he declared what no church ever wants to hear. You're dead. You're dead. What others had viewed as spiritual life, Jesus identified as death. Like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, for example, their outer appearance concealed a decomposed interior. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, Jesus accosts the Pharisees with these words. He says, how terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You're like tombs that are paid in white. Outside, those tombs look fine, but inside, they're full of the bones of dead people and all kinds of unclean things. It's the same with you, he says. People look at you and think you're good, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and evil. This church at Sardis was holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. They were on cruise control. And worse than being on cruise control, they were falling asleep at the wheel. They were dozing off. At a basics conference that I attended at Alistair Begg's church a while ago, I vividly remember in a message to pastors on 2 Timothy chapter 4, Alistair Begg used this analogy of falling asleep at the wheel while on cruise control. 
He says it's much worse than simply drifting off when your foot's on the gas, right? Think about it. In that case, when you hit the rumble strip, it snaps you back to reality, right? And your foot comes off the gas, you slow down, you recover. But when you're on cruise control and you doze off, it's a really bad thing. You know why? Because if you fall asleep at the wheel on cruise control, you will have no capacity for rectifying and recovering. You will crash at full speed into the ditch and destroy yourself and everybody that's in that vehicle with you. It seems that this church was riding the wave of some past successes, yet had failed to complete what they had initially started. They were on cruise control, they were heading for the ditch, and they were dozing off at the wheel. They were falling way short of what God wanted them to do. They were not operating under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They were drifting off at full speed. There was likely a lot of human activity going on here, but the spiritual tank inside was absolutely empty, and they were unconscious to boot. How many churches are in danger of operating that way? I mean, you don't really think about it because people's eyes are open, and they're walking around like the walking dead. A lot of people, a lot of pastors have preached on this church, and they've entitled the message, The Walking Dead. Like zombies. How many of us run our lives this way? How often do people act as if they consult the Holy Spirit for guidance and direction, but in reality, you know what we're doing? Just shooting from the hip. How many people are like that? When a church gets into that kind of situation, it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous, isn't it? Because when churches begin to rely solely on business professionals and church growth experts and formulaic approaches instead of the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, you know what? It's headed for spiritual disaster. Bad information is spiritually toxic. Let me say that again. Bad information is spiritually toxic. The wrong information can poison an entire system. I once read that this principle of toxicity is behind how pesticides and herbicides actually work to shift the analogies. An herbicide kills because it's a hormone that gives a plant bad information. It tells the plant, get this now, it tells the plant to grow faster than its capacity to absorb nutrients allows. And so what happens is it literally grows itself to death. Because its information base is wrong. You know that that can happen to a church if it doesn't maintain a fresh dependence upon the wisdom of Christ? It can. I want to make a statement now. I'm going to repeat it. It'll be on the screen behind me. Let's see if you agree with this. The true church of God is not built by the ingenious leadership strategies of human wisdom, but by the power of Jesus Christ through the working of his spirit. The true church of God is not built by the ingenious leadership strategies of human wisdom, but by the power of Jesus Christ through the working of his Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit can use leadership strategies, but we're not to depend upon them. 
Just as the angel reminded Zerubbabel in the Old Testament, Jesus reminds the church at Sardis, it is not by power, it is not by might, it is by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus prescribed some critical things here that this church at Sardis needed if they were to become spiritually alive and well. And the first one is this. Jesus says, wise up and remember what you received. Remember what you received in the past. I'm kind of reversing the order here because I'm going past, present, future. But here's, here's what it says. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, the first part. Jesus says, so remember what you have received and heard. Remember. The church at Sardis was like a little girl who was asked to bring her birth certificate to school, and she lost it on the way to school. And when the janitor saw her crying in the corner in the hallway, he asked her what was wrong, and the tearful little girl said, I've lost my excuse for being born. How many churches have done the same exact thing? They have started out with great love for Christ, passionate about sharing him and his message with the world around them. They experience the hand of the Lord's blessing as they grow and somehow become so enamored with their success that they lose all of their focus of what they started out doing only to end up compromised, corrupted, and about to die all the while thinking they're blazing for Jesus. They're on fire all right, but what they don't truly know from Jesus' perspective is that their own house is burning down around them. Jesus had nothing good to commend this church at Sardis for other than that they had somewhat of a reputation around them. It's sad because what Jesus implies here is that having a name before men isn't necessarily the same as having a name before God. On his informative website, Follow the Rabbi, Ray Vanderlaan paints a haunting picture of what may have been occurring spiritually at this church at Sardis. He says, one of the most impressive ruins in Sardis is that of the Greek gymnasium and Roman bathhouse. The gymnasium was the center of Greek culture, the means by which they passed on their Hellenistic worldview that the human being, not God, was the center of the universe. This is what happened at the gymnasium there. Within the gymnasium, students trained their bodies and their minds. They read literature about the Greek gods and studied mathematics and philosophy and medicine. They also enjoyed the pleasures and vices of the Roman baths in this gymnasium. Yet in the corner of that immoral, self-glorifying gymnasium, archaeologists have uncovered the largest synagogue of that time period ever found. Inside the gymnasium in a back corner. The presence of the synagogue in the gymnasium, as well as the presence of the defaced pagan symbols within that synagogue, a public fountain, a table decorated with Roman eagles and pairs of icons that typically represented the goddess Sibylle, ask the question, why? Why would the Jews have a synagogue in the gymnasium decorated with idols? Did the Jews of Sardis place their synagogue in the gymnasium in order to influence the pagan culture around them? 
Or had they so adapted to the pagan culture around them in the way of life that they saw no discrepancy between worshiping God and participating in the activities of the gymnasium? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Interestingly, the same question could be asked about the church. The most ancient ruins in the area of Sardis are along the southern banks of the Pactolus River. In the middle of these ruins stood a large open-air shrine initially consecrated to the goddess Sibylle. When the Greeks arrived at about 330 B.C., they built a huge temple to Artemis, their goddess of fertility, and absorbed the grossly immoral worship of Sibylle into their worship. The ruins of this temple, which was one of the seven largest Greek temples in the world, stands as a testimony to the popularity and the power of this cult right there. Yet in one corner of this temple stands a tiny Christian church that was built during the fourth century. Why did Christians build a church inside a pagan temple is the question. Were they seeking to reclaim it? which was probably nearly abandoned at that time, for God? Or had they become so com comfortable in their pagan world that their worship of God blended in with the pagan worship that surrounded them? Although we don't know all the answers to those questions that Sardis presents, it should cause us to consider our own faithfulness to Jesus' commands to be the salt of the earth. Amen? Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it useful again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless, he said. Jesus calls us to mix with society. Yes, he does. No question about it. Yet keep our distinct Christian identity. I mentioned it last week. We're to be insulated, not isolated. We are to build God's kingdom at the heart of our culture, our community, and our world, but we must be careful, very careful, not to compromise the truth in the process or compromise our faith in the process. We must remain distinctively salty, yes? So Jesus says, wise up and remember what you received in the past. Secondly, he says, wake up and reaffirm what remains in the present. In other words, finish what you started. Look at verses 2 and 3 here. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. As someone has recently put it, our consumer experience of church has put us into a coma one which we need help waking up from. See, Sardis was probably occupied first by the Hittites and then by the Lydians. About 550 B.C., the most famous Lydian king, Croesus, known as the richest man in the world, was besieged by Cyrus the Persian. Croesus, who had become apathetic and lazy, fortified himself in the Acropolis of Sardis, and Cyrus could not capture him. This was built upon a hill, and there's no way up to that hill except for one secret path. It was very treacherous and dangerous in the back. 
And one afternoon, a Persian soldier named Lagarus watched a Lydian soldier sneak down the back wall of Sardis in order to retrieve his helmet that had fallen. Deducing that that secret trail existed, Lagarus told Cyrus, whose army snuck up that little path one night, surprised the Lydian army, and conquered the city. Crassus hadn't been as careful about the city's defense as he should have been, and he had, and his people paid for that mistake with their lives. There it is again, cruise control and asleep at the wheel. How relevant was Jesus' warning to the church at Sardis when Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And you're not going to know at what time I will come to you. Given the history of their city, the Christians of Sardis should have understood this imagery all too well. They were conquered because they were unguarded, asleep at the wheel. How relevant is that warning to us? George Barna, contemporary Christian market research analyst, once said that the biggest problem in modern Christianity is spiritual complacency. Jesus, through the pen of the apostle John, was warning the people of Sardis, this church, to be very, very careful, to stay watchful, alert, and alive to what was going on around them and inside of them. My question is, are we? Are we paying attention? Are we being alert? Are we staying watchful? Are we making sure we're alive in Christ? The third thing that Jesus says here in verse 3 is he says, look up and repent. Here's that word again. It keeps showing up every single church that we encounter, doesn't it? Look up and repent and be ready for what's coming in the future. Verse 3 Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So here's a question. How do you know if your church is dead? How do you know if your church is dead? Because church is made up of people, right? So if you're dead, you're unconscious. How do you know? Author Jay Dennis and Jim Henry answer that question this way. Death comes when memories of the past supersede vision for the future. Death comes when memories of the past supersede vision for the future. Now, I must add this. There's nothing wrong with appreciating and reviewing past victories. Nothing wrong with that at all especially when it helps us celebrate the glory of God and motivates us towards stepping out in greater faith for him. Amen? I mean, we're about to engage in that next August 20th as we celebrate 225 years of God's powerful work at Fayette Baptist Church. That's great to remember that stuff. It's great to look back. It's great to check the rearview mirror, but I've often said is you can't drive your car forward when you're looking in the rearview mirror. You're going to hit the ditch. You just check the past. You keep your eyes focused out the windshield, right? So I think the attitude of a healthy church toward ministry should reflect the spirit of the Italian master painter Raphael, who when asked which was, which was his greatest painting, you know what he said? My next one. My next one. 
See, a church that wins the applause of heaven and the approval of Jesus is not content to complacently exist on past successes. It remains alert, guarding what has already been accomplished, yet seeks to break new ground as the Spirit leads. Amen? This is the same message that was given to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, and have become very so very personal to me as it is an integral part of my life verses. 2 Timothy chapter 4, start in verse 3, says, A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desire and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and they will chase after myths. But here's the key thing. But you, Timothy, you should keep a clear mind in every situation. I'll say this to the church because I think this is what Jesus is saying to the church. You should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Amen? In other words, don't drift off. Be sober-minded. Don't be intoxicated by the heady wine of heresy. Keep your hands on the wheel. Recognize the cost, because there's a cost involved in guarding the deposit of the gospel. Do the work of evangelism. In other words, tell people about Jesus, not about politics. Tell people about Jesus, and the politics will take care of themselves. Finish the job that you were given. Keep going. Carry it out to full commission. My conviction is that this exhortation to Timothy is not just for me as a pastor, as I've said. It's for you as a church as well. To me, this is what it means to be alive in Christ, not drifting off, sober-minded, recognizing the cost, doing evangelism, finishing the job. And this is exactly what Sardis was not doing, according to Christ. Apparently, though, there was a small remnant of true followers who had not given in. Their garments had not been soiled with the smell of death. Look at verses 4 and 5. But, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their gar- garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Yay. There's a remnant in Sardis. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. There's a few people there who have not soiled their garments. This is interesting terminology here, considering the fact that Sardis was very famous for its purple dye. It was one of the first places ever to dye cloth. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to walk with me with white garments. So what do you think? What do you think? As part of Jesus' church, are you dead or alive? Dead or alive? Yeah, praise God. I hope so. I pray that Jesus would stand here today and say, there's a whole load of you out there that have not soiled their garments. And you too, Pastor. Praise God. That's what we're aiming for, right? 
That is the trajectory that we need to be on. Otherwise, we're dead in the water. Well, Harvard biologist Edward O. Wilson performed a rather bizarre experiment on ants that serves as a very apropos illustration here. After noticing that it took ants a few days to recognize that one of their crumpled nestmates were dead, he determined that ants identify death by clues of smell, not by visual things. As when insects like bees and ants die and they decompose, they emit something called oleic acid. As the ant's body begins to decompose, other ants would infallibly carry that dead ant out of the nest to a refuse pile outside. After many tries, Wilson narrowed down that precise chemical clue to oleic acid. If the ants smelled oleic acid, they would carry out the corpse. Any other smell, they completely ignored. Their instinct was so strong that if Wilson daubed oleic acid on bits of paper, other ants would dutifully carry the paper to the ant cemetery. In a final twist, Wilson painted oleic acid on the bodies of living ants. Sure enough, their nestmates seized them and marched them, their legs and antennae wriggling in protest, out to the ant cemetery. These indignant living dead had to clean themselves off completely before they could return to the nest and stay there. If they did not remove every single trace of oleic acid, the nestmates would promptly seize them again and return them back out to the cemetery. They had to be judged certifiably alive, judged solely by smell before being accepted back into the nest. Friends, the aroma of Christ all over your life and all over my life, if that was the sole judge of whether or not we were certifiably alive, how would we fare? Would there be enough evidence to convict us? Because you know what? At the bottom of it all, the glory of God is a church fully alive. The glory of God is a church fully alive. Am I? Are we? Are you spiritually alive? You know, because you can be. You can be. All it takes is one step of faith, one step of repentance to turn from what you think was living to what is real life, faith in Jesus Christ who gave his life for the church on the cross, shed his blood, and rose from the dead, rose from the grave, amen? He didn't have oleic acid on him, right? Certifiably alive. And he appeared. He appeared to all kinds of people. That's part of the gospel. You believe that. You confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Say it with your mouth. Say it with your lips. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be alive. You'll be alive. Eternal life will be yours. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.